In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 fun. Light speed to the wondrous and wonderful. Cover is not the book, so open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired. I have to sing. I have to play. The music, it's, it's not just in me. It is me. We're happier when you don't sing. Welcome to Notably Disney your ultimate podcast covering Disney music and books. I'm Brett Knackman, your host. Here we dig a little deeper and explore the great wide somewhere about everything under the Walt Disney Company umbrella as it pertains to tunes and writing, from the theme parks and television screens to the Broadway stage and the silver screen, if it relates to anything Disney songs, soundtracks, books, articles, or other things that you can listen to, or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. Over the years, I have conducted many, many dozens of interviews on Notably Disney, and one of the most fulfilling experiences I have had was with composer John Debney, an individual who I had long admired, his projects and, and what he was able to accomplish across a number of different divisions of Disney. And then when talking with him, what a genuine nice, uh, fascinating individual, very generous, and uh, that really stood out to me, and so I was really thrilled to have the chance to talk with him again, and so what you're going to hear today is my conversation with John about his uh, early days with Disney. We covered a little bit of it in the last conversation, but I'm exploring a different dimension today, as well as uh, his theme park contributions, most notably uh, we talk about Phantom Manor in Disneyland Paris, which I just told you all about on the podcast that I visited for the first time and thought it was incredible. Uh, we also talk a little bit about Hocus Pocus 2 and can clearly see his appreciation for having been a part of uh, both the original and the sequel. Uh, really glad I had the chance to talk with John. You're going to hear all of that and more on this episode of Notably Disney, and I hope you enjoy. Back in fall 2020, I welcomed John Debney to the podcast. The Emmy Award-winning and Academy Award-nominated composer possesses a prolific catalog of film projects that he has contributed to the Walt Disney Company, from Hocus Pocus and The Princess Diaries, which we talked about uh, at length, uh, to Inspector Gadget and 2016's The Jungle Book, among others. Now, although we discussed some of John's film-based efforts on that episode, we didn't fully explore his equally important efforts within the Disney theme parks. So today on the podcast, I'm really happy to have John back to share more about his work for the company, including compositions for attractions, including Phantom Manor and It's a Small World at Disneyland Paris, which I was telling John prior to recording that I just got back from uh, for the first time, and it was fantastic. So thrilled to have you return, John. You were truly a very thoughtful and, and kind guest um, and just gave a lot of really rich input um, and, and perspective on, on your project. So I was really uh, honored to have the opportunity then and, and once again today. So thank you. Welcome back. Thank you, Brett. It's so good to be back with you. Um, you're, you're way too kind. Uh, I enjoyed speaking with you as much as you did with me. And I thought we had a lot of fun that day. So thank you for having me back. So now the bar is set high, and now we need to see if we can f- fulfill that or, or reach that level on this episode, John. <laughs> no pressure. Let's try. Let's try. Well, John, certainly we recognize that your Disney theme park compositions encompass several decades and a few continents as well. I do want to start off by asking you a little bit about your roots with Disney, which we explored last time. We talked about your connection to the studio by virtue of your father, Lou. and I want to orient listeners to the fact that among one of your first jobs for Disney was as an actor. 
<laughs> playing a student in the strongest man in the world the last oh, installment yeah, yeah. of you dexter riley that. films you had to bring that up didn't you <laughs> no actually i wear that as a badge of honor it was so much fun you know uh growing up in the in the disney family as it were the extended family um there were those perks you know where uh different kids of, of different employees would sometimes you know get sort of the the uh honor and and the opportunity to be in a tv show or a movie what have you and i was in a few as uh as an extra as part of a you know kid group of kids what have you and strongest man in the world was really fun for me because by that time i was now a teenager um i forget if i was exactly 16 17 something like that and the opportunity arose that they needed uh, some college frat kids uh, to be a part of that movie and you know i became one of the frat kids and it was really fun it wasn't all disney employee um kids but i i was one of maybe seven or eight guys and uh, i even remember that i got a buddy of mine from high school uh on that show too so we had a summer of fun we um i think we were on you know on set or on call for at least three weeks or so and then i remember we were done and then i was on a retainer and then they called me back to do some more reshoots so it was truly a, a summer of fun and uh being on the set and and you know interacting with kurt was was really amazing um you know it's just really fun and, and that great cast of those those of your listeners that remember the film that that huge and great cast of character actors many of most of which are probably not even with us now um anyway thanks for bringing that up i was student number four or something like that well, one of one of your early jobs for for Disney, and this I guess yeah. prompts a question, and I don't I, I don't know the answer, so forgive me. Have you yeah. composed any films starring Kurt Russell by chance? Boy, that's a good one. Uh, yes, um, the one that pops in my mind it could be the only one I've done is was a film called a Dreamer, a true. Oh, story, yes, yes, is, with Dakota know, Fanning. Yes, Dakota Fanning. It was yes. a lovely movie. Really that was sweet movie that i thoroughly enjoyed working on and kurt was in that um and it was amazing that guy's amazing and everything he's in as, as we all know and i remember going to the premiere and i i kind of went up to him and and i introduced myself i said that i did the music for this film he goes oh great man i guess he said i love the music and then i said kurt we have a weird connection and then i mentioned you know I was in a movie called follow me boys when he was much younger and I was much younger, which was about a you know, group of cub scouts. And we had to rescue a cub scout that was hanging off a cliff. That's the scene I was in. Oh, wow. Okay. And, and then I, you're in that too. Yeah. Yeah, I was. And then, and then I mentioned, uh, you know, strongest man in the world. And he was so sweet. He goes, you've got to be kidding. And I go, no. And he, he goes, oh God, how fun! How fun is that? So, we we shared a moment of that connection, and um, so yeah, I think that's perhaps the only Kurt Russell film that I've scored. Um, if yeah, memories a little fuzzy, but yeah, that well, was a really fun one too. I remember that being a very sweet film, and almost I think during a a little bit of resurgence in his career because he had done Miracle and Sky High around that period, more of that fam family fair, but exactly. as an adult. Exactly. And Dreamer was right in that same same space. Yeah, the whole thing was wonderful. The guy that directed and wrote it is a great guy. And um, it was just a pleasure. I mean, that whole, it was rather quick. I had to replace somebody, which I've done a few times. And so I had to kind of hit the ground running. Luckily, that kind of music is in my wheelhouse and my heart and soul. I love Americana um, music and, you know, from Aaron Copeland to all those scores that we all have heard over the years. So that one kind of just resonated with me. And um, 
it was fun because my dad my dad was a horseman of sorts and we used to ride horses all the time back in the day and so that movie in particular is sort of my homage to my dad that's my little fun fact so yeah that's a, a nice sentiment um i i was interested in learning more about your early career with with disney um, just harkening back to that. And and you've talked in the past in some other contexts a, a little bit here and there about the role that Disney composer Buddy Baker had in in shaping your journey. Yeah. And and I guess I'm curious, what about his personality and and working style contributed to him having that type of impact on you? Well, thank you for asking that question. Buddy was a seminal uh, character in my life, a, a mentor, a true mentor. And the things about Buddy that I observed rather, you know, early in my career working over at the studio when I got out of college was the fact that Buddy would come in every day in coat and tie, suit and tie, and he would go in his, you know, same time every day, and he left at the same time. And during the day, he got, he had such a work ethic. I guess that's what I'm leading to. He was so disciplined, and he had such a great work ethic. and. I observed that and I really took that to heart. So I believe that that was my first foray into watching a true professional at what he, you know, what he did, a, a working composer. And uh, it, it, it impressed the heck out of me. And as time went on, Buddy would give me more and more things to do, um, theme park music, et cetera. And uh, we just developed a great friendship, and that last that friendship lasted for many many years. When he when he had left Disney and he was teaching over at USC uh, here in LA, and uh, he just was a lovely guy, just a great guy. He he would what did he call me? He always called me Big John, you know, because I guess I was taller than him, and I don't know, you know, it just stuck and. Um, he's just a great guy. So I can't say enough, you know, I can't give him enough accolades. I just think he was wonderful. And he was a great composer. I mean, he was truly, he, truly a Disney legend, shall we say. And, um, so that was really my first, he was the first person that I really in the professional world observed and latched onto and thought, I want to be like him, you know? Well, I think what you're speaking to there is a, a point that transcends really any industry. You can be a very talented individual in your field, but that has to also be complemented being, by being a, just a consummate professional and decent person. Agreed. You know, so many very, very talented people. Um, you know, I think, it, I think it goes with the territory, honestly, Brett. Maybe we're all tortured as artists or writers and painters and um, and so it definitely is true for composers, musicians, and, you know, there are a lot of cautionary tales of, um, gosh, some very notable Disney composers that in the day were, you know, you know, the, the, the things that the vices of the day of drinking, smoking and all that, um, in, in the heyday of Disney, it, everybody was, kind of living large, fast, and, and you know, and uh, so I think in Buddy's case, he was the more exception to the normal rule of, of uh, seeing artists sort of crash and burn, even though they're so talented. Buddy, you know, again, was prolific, and he was brilliant, and he was just a kind, nice guy, and I, and I thought, you know, he especially, I wanted to kind of, you know, grab as a role model, I guess you'd say. He and Richard Sherman were my two guys that I really got to know, got to love, and, you know, really took it upon myself to be like them, I guess you'd say. And, and Richard Sherman, I just saw we're recording this in mid-June, just celebrated his, I think, 95th birthday. Yes, um, yes. I haven't seen him in a couple of years. He's, you know, um, health, when you get up in that age group, you know, health is a, of a concern. So I, I would love to see him. I, I know he's doing okay. So, um, 
Yeah, he just, boy, he's amazing. 85, geez. I think 95, actually. I'm John. sorry, 95. Yes, yeah. you're right. 95. Yeah. That's right, because we were working together on Jungle Book, you know, about six years ago or whatever it's been, maybe seven. And yeah, he was probably 88, 89 by then. Yeah. Well, it's incredible. It really is. And, you know, you're talking about folks like Richard Sherman and, and Buddy Baker, folks who had direct connections to Walt, yourself included, yeah. and, and folks who really serve as a bridge between one era of the company and another. And I think about you becoming more embedded in Disney in the late 70s, early 80s by virtue of your relationship with Buddy, but also... Um, at, for in your case, an arranger for the music in Epcot as the park was coming to form. I understand you were handling cue music and area music for pavilions oh. like Germany and Horizons and others. Can you share a little I, bit about yeah, that? Yeah, I, I I was so lucky. Bro. I, you know, first of all, having a dad that worked at the company was was amazing, and I was very lucky. And so I started working in the music department out of college. And, you know, initially, I'd say for the first year or so, I was really doing, you know, a lot of work, like in the copying department, I would paste scores up, I would really, it was really part of the fun of the job, I would bring scripts over to, you know, composers that were going to work at the studio, like John Barry, um, like Marie Char, a bunch of them. So I would, you know, young guy must have been 20 or eight, 19, maybe I would go and sometimes they would answer the door and I'd get to meet them and, you know, say a few words. So I was in the music department. And then once I got to know buddy a bit, he started to give me things to do. And luckily that turned into doing a whole bunch of music for Epcot. Uh, and and uh, the World Showcase in particular, and yes, and I co-wrote parts of Horizons, um, and uh, you know it's just other. I remember doing some of those Circle Vision things with Buddy. Just you know, it, when you're on staff, you do bits and pieces, and Buddy would give me assignments and. One of those assignments was writing area music for a bunch of those um, world showcase places like Germ the different countries, Germany, France. I've worked on a bunch of them and I did a bunch of area music, like hours of area music. Um, so it was really fun. And, and I, in hindsight, I think that was a heck of a training ground because I got to do deep dives into the cultural you know, in the cult, into the culture of each country I was working on. And that was really fun and their music. So that's really how it started. I was, you know, buddy would give us stuff to do. And there were a number of us on staff, on staff there at the time. And he was, you know, sort of the head honcho and he gives things to do. And that, that whole period must've lasted a couple of years of just working on all kinds of stuff. You know, um, at some point in there, I started doing, you know, theme park music like for the, the, you know, for Disneyland and Disney World. Whole bunches of stuff, you know, like when they redid um, Tomorrowland back in the day. Got it so long ago now. I did a bunch of that. I did the teacups and I did, you know, all those dark rides. I did a lot of that. Peter Pan, all those. Alice yeah. in Wonderland. So, I mean, it's pretty voluminous, all those the things I've done. But that's how it started was doing things for Buddy and for Epcot. That's really how it started. Well, it's interesting to think, too, that your work encompassed uh, a wide variety of spaces in, in Epcot, but also, um, you know, hopping on the other side of the country with New yeah. Fantasyland in 83. Like, that was a you know, transformation of that of that space. And to think that, that you're your music is kind of embedded in, in a variety of different attractions too. Well, it is. And, you know, Tomorrowland, I did a bunch of area music and, and we used to laugh because um, I, I got to look at all the old scores, like from 20,000 leagues under the sea and all those different 
great scores of the time. So I did a bunch of area music for that, that land and then fantasy land. Absolutely. I did gosh, the, the Dumbo ride and, and the dark rides in that land and um, whole bunches of stuff. And then somewhere along the line, I, I did actual rides like, uh, you know, splash mountain and, I would do parts of, I did parts of Thunder Mountain with Buddy. So we had different people that were kind of involved in these different things, but but all sort of assigned by Buddy. So Buddy was sort of the, you know, he was the main man there for that. And so he would divvy out different things to us as uh, it was needed. It was really fun. That's incredible. I didn't realize you had a connection to... Um... The submarine voyage because uh, you know we were talking when we talked yeah. on our last uh conversation you said how much you admired um paul smith's score for yes. the Twenty Thousand leaks film so I, I didn't realize you had a, a link there yes i did and um i uh huge admirer of all of those guys paul smith all of them all of them um frank churchill you know all of them lee harley um how could you not you know it was just, I was so fortunate to be there at a time when, you know, I could hold in my hand those original scores, which were magnificent. George Bruns is another name. Um, so, yeah, I, I got to adapt so many of their scores. Um, remember the Alice in Wonderland ride was really one of the the ones that's one of the ones that sticks out in my mind because mind you, I was a very young guy and I was able to hire many of the guys that played on the original scores for some of those movies. Wow. Decades later, yeah, decades later. And many of them, you know, most of them are gone, but I, they, most of them were, you know, older by then. And many of them were the only people that played those instruments. You know, there were, instruments in Alice in Wonderland um, that I could only find if you got the original people. And I did. Um, it was really, really cool. It was really cool. This guy named Art Smith, who was Paul Smith's brother. I think it's Art. Art Smith played woodwinds and he was a session player. And uh, I, he was one that sticks out of mind. He did all the ocarinas. Those really interesting um instruments you hear in Alice in Wonderland, you know, a very un unmerry birthday, you know, dun, 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 all those really cool instruments he played. And I do remember he was probably in his seventies and I was a guy, like I said, 20, 21, you know, and I got to meet me. I really got to meet many of the guys that were on these sessions and it was wonderful. Like I'll give you one other person, uh, great singer, Thurl Ravenscroft who did all those you know he did phantom mansion he did the you know haunted mansion and he sang and spoke he was the one that he was a bass voice and, uh, and i got to work with him many years with wdi because he, i would have him come in with with the session singers and and throw it all he was, hello john i go hi thurl and uh, so I got to meet that wonderful cast of characters. You know, you're just sort of bringing a lot of great memories back to me. I got to meet a lot of them. I got, to, uh, you know, the ones that were on the original ride uh, tracks or on the original films. And um, God, what a gift that was for me as a young man to meet those guys and those ladies. And, and, uh, you know, picked their brain a minute and kind of sh they shared stories with me and it was great. So it, that was a heady time for me, you know. And in, in that, in that sense, you know, folks like you, you also serve as a bridge between that era and then the present. And yeah. I think I think of Phantom Manor is kind of an, actually a nice transition from Thurl Ravenscroft with Horn yeah. Mansion. I think that that is now that I've experienced that attraction at Disneyland Paris, as I told you prior to us recording, I feel like that um, that is very much a, a you attraction. It's it's not it's not just you only reinterpreting 
grim grinning ghosts and some of the score which you do but it, it has your stamp on it and what like my my partner and i we you know we we go through this attraction and multiple times during our two days and we're just absolutely enthralled not just by the visuals but of course the the audio experience and wow. it and just feels like a this a, a grand hollywood score it's ominous it's spellbinding um the attraction heavily utilizes the a waltz just to familiarize listeners and it focuses on this bride character and and yeah. who's um who's just absolutely terrifying with some of her suitors as well you have a, a signature six bar theme that is just totally dynamic and and just so mm -hmm. super catchy and I, I i can't say enough good things about it because it was it's one of those experiences writing it and then listening to the score outside of it that just it it's enveloping there's no that's other way so, of putting it that's so kind of you that's so sweet um you know i it was such an, a great experience to work on that honestly and the fact that you mentioned it, that it integrate the music integrates really well with the storytelling i agree with you i think for me there there're two that stand out and that that being one of them um where i was given such a free reign to just create there weren't there weren't a lot of constraints of well you know we have to hear grim grinning ghosts here and you know so they really did want my theme an original theme which i did and i think i came up with the idea of the waltz because it just sort of you know i i know the ballroom scene is the one we all kind of remember with all the you know and that stuck in my head I remember going down to disneyland writing um haunted mansion many times trying to get you know just sort of get inspiration from it and that's what i walked away with was why don't we do a grand waltz and make it all permutations of that? And, you know, we demo, I demoed it for them. They, they loved it. Um, I could forget the show producer. I, I know it was Tony, but it was Tony Baxter, but it was one of the legends over there. And um, that one just sort of clicked and, you know, it was so fun because we recorded it. Uh, as I recall, we recorded it in London uh, I remember doing the vocals in London. So I guess we did the whole thing over there. And it just has that, that quality to it that it's hard to put into words. And, and But thank you for your kind words. The, the other one that I would point to as another really fun one and one where I felt the music really integrated with the story really well, and that was Spectra Magic, which was the, you know, replacement, as it were, to um electric light parade but they're really two separate things but it was sort of intended at the time to be you know the next the next version of the the parade and those two things i they stick out in my mind as being very organically integrated in a in the best way with the ride or with the the, the parade with the storytelling so anyway but thank you for that and those two are really two of my favorites well and and i think what what's what's striking about being in the disney attraction is where you just lose your sense of time and place there's this like um just transportation of, of sorts uh that yeah. that unfolds and what's unique about phantom manor and and i know you said prior um to recording that you, you haven't physically visited it but what what really strikes me as as a as a an, as a guest is the introduction to the attraction when you board the doom buggy there's a grand staircase that ascends over the loading platform and they added the bride figure and your right. your score is just overcoming as you as you enter to kind of get everybody into that sense of foreboding and it's just it's a spectacular introduction and sets the scene in, in the perfect way well i yeah i see that's what i mean i think that the show producer and 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 those amazing artists at WDI really planned that one out to just to perfection. And they really were going for something that was much more gothic, you know. I mean, that the the charm of Haunted Mansion is that it it's really charming and fun. And it's not that scary. I guess to littler you know, kids it is, but I think they were going a much more gothic kind of more adult 
horror feeling, um, otherworldly feeling. And I, and I think that that was great. And it came out in the design for sure. I had, um, I had all those story sketches in my room while I was composing and I would muse on each one and kind of come up with something. And, um, and that's sort of how it went. And gosh, we, we recorded all kinds of things. We recorded big cathedral organs in London and um, did custom music boxes. We had a music box built that would actually play the tune. And that's what you hear in, in, you know, when you see the music box and the attraction, it's actually a real music box that, that they had made by a music box maker. I, I, there were many years ago, I think I asked somebody at, at WDI, do they still have it? And, and I think it's on, you know, I think it's on permanent, um, what do they call that? It's a permanent exhibit somewhere, or they have it. Because I, I was sort of like, could I make a copy of it, you know? And they were like, oh, yeah. Anyway, but that I asked, and um, so that's how deep the research and the music um, DNA goes on that thing. It's just very integrated i guess is the, it's still the right word it was really well thought out and really well integrated and it feature the attraction features a number of distinct elements from the american version um one of which is that there's this western town at the end with hon honky tonk piano yeah. um and and in the skeleton catacombs there's like use of a xylophone yeah. there's a lot of unique elements that you were able to infuse in in this interpretation true Again, I think we did it all in London, if memory serves me right. Um, I feel like it was Abbey Road so, Studios, if I, I think it was it Abbey correctly. Road. Yeah. I mean, that could have been, I, do you know, what is the date? Do you know the date? 92. So 92. The, the park opened in 92. So I assume it was in the month spring. Yeah. That could have been, er, that was early in, in my traveling career over to doing scores over there. And so, you know, I'd been there prior, but that was probably one of my first solo ventures where I went over and it was me and and the WDI guys and and uh, and it's it's a little fuzzy, but I do remember the children's. We did a boys' choir, we did a mixed choir, we did all kinds of those great instruments that you're talking about. We did them upstairs, one of the studios, Navy Road. And we did the orchestra there, and um, it was just great. You're bringing back all those great memories. One of my favorite elements of it, and I think it is for a lot of folks, is that there's a very eerie soprano that the bride sings. Yes. How did you come to develop that element? You know what? We It wasn't too hard. We auditioned a bunch of singers, uh, sopranos, and... Um, I don't know what we all settled on one lady. I don't know her name, but um, she was just remarkable. She had a quality to her and they did do some really interesting um, kind of filtering of her to give her a very, um, what would the right word be? Ethereal yet, you know, very chilling quality to her. Um I just remember that we we auditioned a bunch of singers and we settled upon this one soprano and I thought, I, yeah, I thought she was great. And I had the same reaction. It was very otherworldly, I guess the right word, ghostly, ghostly. And I, and I love how the attraction is a, in many ways, a thread line to not only the original Haunted Mansion, but also Buddy Baker, because yeah. there are many nods to Grim Grinning Ghosts, which you incorporate, but it's still... It's familiar, but it's spun in a different way to to suit the setting. Definitely, definitely. I, you know, and I'm wondering. I'm sure. I don't know when Buddy left the company, but I'm sure he must have heard it. I think I must have sent it to him, perhaps. Um. But yeah, it was. Um, I mean, gosh, Buddy's work, and what they did, and 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 in such a short period of time for. Haunted Mansion and all the attractions there and pirates. 
Um, Buddy had his hand in all of them, I think, or a great majority of them. Um, and they're just great, aren't they? I mean, the arrangements, the they're so of a time, I guess you'd say. And Buddy had his style. Buddy had his Disney-esque way of writing, as they all did. Even even the you know the the giants that were before him, they all had. A, a harmonic vocabulary that was very unique, really very unique. Um, and so, yeah, so my little take on it was just my take on it and that they wanted a different take than the original, certainly. And so that's what came out. It was just a joyful, fun, exuberant time for me right in there, right in the, those early 90 periods. And that's the power of theme park attractions because it's a it's a three dimensional experience, and that's yeah. where music has such an integral element. And and of course, when we think of Disney music, we think of it's a small world, which you yeah. also were commissioned to uh, for Disneyland Paris. Do you, do you remember what your initial thoughts were when when that opportunity emerged? Um, I, my initial thoughts were I, I'm trying to think if I was actually still with the company or if I'd recently left, I, I'd have to look back on those dates, but it, none of that really doesn't matter. So in other words, was that, were those both assigned to me? I think I'd already left and I think I'd done so much for the company that they, you know, they came to me as one that one of their composers that they've worked with. And, um, when I first thought of Small World, I was sort of daunted by the fact that, you know, what am I going to do? It, it, this is so iconic. Both of them were so iconic, both attractions. I do know that Small World, I remember the overarching idea with Small World. They wanted it to be a bigger version of, An you know, Anaheim in, in the original show. And they wanted it to be bigger more more have more scope and i remember distinctly being able to do a jazz big band chart uh, that kind of sticks in my mind as something that was really fun to do because how do you do a small world as, as a as a jazzy big band chart and some and it turned out great somehow um <laughs> i had great arrangers and we kind of we kind of did it but i think small world was was more of not reinventing the wheel, but just kind of being an adjunct or a, or a, you know, a big brother or a little brother or a little sister to the original. Um, I don't, I don't, unlike Phantom Manor, which is much more kind of reimagining the whole thing. Um, Small World was a little more because it had to be, I think, because of the, of the mechanics of, of the, um, you know, the characters and, it, it couldn't be too far afield, I think, from the original. And uh, so that's kind of what we're going for, a bigger, a bigger version of small, just a bigger in scope version. Yeah, well, and it's, you, you referenced earlier how much you appreciate American music and, and, and sure, Western music. Yeah. And, the, and there's a scene in the attraction that kind of pays tribute to that setting, yes. because, of course, being in Paris, it's not yes. the same as being in the States. That's right. That's right. There are many, you know, there's a playlist somewhere that I that I should send you. I I happened upon it on YouTube, like it popped up with my name on it, and it was somebody had constructed a playlist of you know of every single cue all the way through the ride, and that's that's fun to listen to because yeah, there's there's the Western version, there's the jazz version, there's the the very French version, there's there's all kinds of little too many to, for me to remember, but. Um, but in both cases of both those shows, that was a long process doing that. That I remember being on each of those. I think they were very close together. Maybe I was doing them at the same time because of the opening, you know, they had to have them ready for opening. So um, I believe they were done close to each other. And we probably recorded them at the same time, maybe. I'm not sure. Or within the same similar time frame or the same year um 
but yeah, it was really fun. Just going, putting on my hat and doing different versions and, and uh, having done a lot of that in world showcase that really helped me, you know, I would imagine. Yeah. That you said training ground earlier. I can see how in a sense that mm. that would lend itself well for, for a Paris based attraction. Yeah. Um, John, I, I, I want to kind of close out with a, also kind of a connection to to this time, which was the early 90s and and you composing Hocus Pocus, which of yep. course was you know a, a humongous film opportunity for you that set so many other wonderful projects in motion. I want to close out with sure. Hocus Pocus 2. Um debuted last year. Everybody yeah. loved it. It was How- so much fun for me, Brett. You know, you can imagine those of you listening, um, to be able to revisit something that you had done, God, 30 years prior, am I right? Or 25, 20 years? 30 years, years. yes. This the, year or next yeah, year? Yeah, July, uh, July 1993. Oh, my gosh. There we go. Coming up. It was just an absolute joy. And and I'd be really honest with you guys and, and your listeners, with you and your listeners. I was dying to do it. Um I just thought, you know, what a wonderful thing if they ask me to do it. So I had to do a little bit of the audition process, which was nothing new. I always have to do that. Uh, new director, and the wonderful Ann Fletcher. And, and we didn't really know each other. We'd met each other a few times. Um, I have a good friend in Adam Shankman, who's my lovely friend who I love. We've done a couple of movies together. And so Adam was producing... He introduced me to Ann Fletcher, and honestly, we just sort of clicked. Like, there was a moment where she said, why don't you just do this movie with me? And I said, oh, God, please, can I? (laughs) You know, and so we did it, and I'll tell you, it was so much fun. You know, and what was the score going to be? Because Ann wanted, obviously, a lot of the original themes you know my original themes were in there um the main theme being the most important of those and the brother and sister theme was another one that was in there but i i told her and i've got to create a few new themes for the sisters and she said yeah go for it so what came out is interestingly enough is a waltz what is there a theme here Brett? and you know it, you know what you like you know what you, pr- it was you, a waltz. you play well I always envisioned the girls, I, girls back then, ladies, whatever, you know, now. Um, I envisioned them. They were all, Kenny Ortega told me on the first film. I may have told you this story. Early on, he said, John, just treat this as a musical. Because every scene, they're in tempo. They're walking in tempo. They, they're they doing their shtick in tempo. I'm like, da-da-da-da, you know. And their their steps, and I go, oh my God, Kenny, thank you for that. And that opened the door to the the whole score, because the whole score was, dun, 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 dun. you know, it was this, dun, 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 dun. it was all, it was a musical. And uh, so two comes around, and I, you know, I'm a different person than I was as a young man doing that one. So. This one, to me, is the older, 30 years later version of the first one, which was such a joy for me because I got to replay most of those themes for my one of my best friends, David Kirshner, the executive producer who wrote and created Hocus Pocus. Thank you, David. Um, I got to play all the themes for him one day. and with the orchestra playing and we're both in tears so that number two though had to sort of stand on its own and i created this we i call it winnie's theme but it's this there's a winnie's theme and there's there's you know um there are a couple other themes in there the young girls sort of have their own theme um but winnie's theme is kind of a an older version. Uh, I don't mean it that way. I mean it in terms of my growth as a composer and where I am now. And it's still it it relates to the first theme, but it's different. And and this new theme is like it goes like this. 
And and so there are variations of it. And it's a really kind of fun, lyrical umpa theme for them because, you know, that is just, that inspires me. And so I kind of wrote it for her. And I just think, I just had a ball doing it. And I love, when I listen to that soundtrack of, of number two, it's so fun for me because I hear all the original themes and yet I get all the new themes and somehow they, they seem to live in the same beautiful universe of Hocus Pocus. And I'll, I'll put it this way. If there's a third, which I hear they're talking about. Yep. It's been announced. But if I'm lucky enough to work on that, God willing, what might I come up with? You know, um, I was quite enamored with in two, the wonderful actress from um, Ted Lasso. I, I just spacing on her name right now, but she appears early in the film as the, you know, the beautiful kind of beautiful witch of the forest. And I'm hoping she might come back because maybe there's a theme for her. Just maybe. Yeah. Hannah Waddingham. Hannah Waddingham. Thank you. Yeah. She's got to come back. I hope she comes. If you know, if there's a three, whoever's doing it in terms of directing, writing, I hope Anne does it. Um, I, I when the announce when there was an announcement, I think uh, we're recording this la- uh, mid June last week, I believe. Uh, Anne's name was attached, so I love it. Well, she is incredibly wonderful, and she gave uh, she imbued number two with her own wonderfulness, her own brilliance, and. Uh, I think that's why it worked so well. I, I mean, it's hard to compare the original to the the, number, the second one, but the fact that they sort of stand together in in many ways, um, and yet number two is appealing to the a newer audience, of course. Um, I just think it's a kick. I just think it's wonderful. I'm hoping that I, Anne would let me do the third one if and when it happens because. Again, there's a lot more that I'd love to say musically, you know, that you often don't get to do. So I, I'm I'm glad the sequel presented itself, and and I think at the right time too. And uh, I want to wrap up. Um, you know, you've surrounded yourself with folks who are formal Disney legends. You talk about um, you mentioned Kenny Ortega, Bette Midler. Yeah. And Betty Baker and Richard Sherman earlier, but your body of work, John, is for for Disney and in general and Hollywood is very comprehensive and very, very rich. And so um, I think we're all the luckier for for being able to to be able to enjoy it in three dimensional spaces on the silver screen. So I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you again. Well, that that's awfully kind of you. I, I must tell you and your listeners, I'm the lucky one because um, the reaction that I've gotten over the years for films and attractions, as we spoke about today, um, TV things, movie things, all kinds of things. It, that's the payoff. I get many, many people that come up to me, like like we touched on today. Many, many of the fans are so touched by what what I've done and what we do. You know what the Imagineers have done. And I would add one more thing to when we were talking about the 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 ride the you know the ride music the the attractions that I've done they're sort of timeless you know where else do you get at least for me where else am I able to go and visit places that I'm hearing music that I wrote almost forty years ago in some cases and that that's truly amazing to be able to take my grandson you know and I remember my grandson and I number of years ago before COVID, we took him, we all went to Disneyland and we rode all those rides. We rode um, Splash Mountain and uh, he couldn't believe it. He was old enough to go, you rode that, Papa? I go, yeah. And so that's really fun. And I'm so lucky to put it that way. I'm the lucky one, you know, and I thank everyone that, that enjoys and supports everything I've been doing. That's the beauty of music, and that's the beauty of writing. There's there's an everlasting nature to it. So that's the profound effect. So thank you again, John. 
Thank you so much. Thank you. Many thanks go out once again to John for joining me on Notably Disney for the second time. It was an absolute delight. And I encourage you to check out many of John's projects that uh, will be debuting over the coming months and years. If you look on his IMDb profile, you'll see that he is attached to a number of features that are connected to popular franchises. Uh, Let's definitely uh, start the campaign for John to be attached to Hocus Pocus 3, given that the film was officially announced recently. Uh, and mentioned in an interview with uh, Sean Bailey of the Walt Disney Studios, it is happening. And so that's something to be excited about. So uh, John's legacy, of course, is extremely substantive. Uh, I certainly have mentioned uh, on the past when I recorded with Aaron Wallace about different Disney figures who should be awarded a, a Disney Legend Award. And John would definitely be very deserving of such an honor, and I certainly hope the company can recognize him for his for his efforts, for his strong impact and and wonderful contributions to uh, the Walt Disney Company over these uh, really five decades. Um, it's it's really quite something. So let, let's hope that can happen in time. And uh, thank you again to John for joining me. Hope you all enjoyed. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Notably Disney. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Follow me on Twitter at bnachmanreports. That's B-N-A-C-H-M-A-N reports. And be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to notablydisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well as suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett, and thanks for listening to Notably Disney. Notably Disney is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or any of its subsidiaries. Consequently, the perspectives and opinions expressed by the host and guests are strictly theirs and do not represent the views of the Walt Disney Company and its employees. The main purpose of the Notably Disney podcast is to offer information and critiques about the Walt Disney Company.